Hello, and welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. This is your host, Dr. Sean T. Lorden, and author of The 11 Winning Secrets to Stop Aging in Its Tracks. Enjoy the show. So hello, and welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. I am your host, Dr. Sean Lorden of Concierge PT, and today I've got uh, Dr. Ben Saviet of Central Mass Podiatry. Uh, He's board certified in foot and ankle surgery, and... uh, I'll just let you take it from here, Ben. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you became, uh, how you got into podiatry. Sure. So I'm Ben Saviot. I'm a local guy my whole life around here in Worcester. Grew up in Sutton, went to St. John's. Uh, my family was a bit of a, <clears throat> I had two brothers and we were a bit, a bit of fixtures on the cross country and track teams at St. John's for the seven years that we spanned it between my older brother and my younger brother and myself. Um, so my background is, I got exposed to a lot of medicine through distance running. And for me, you know, I ran at, ran at St. John's, ran for Providence college for four years, did a year of grad school at UMass Lowell, knocked out a a master's degree and burnt up a season of cross country eligibility. I had left over and a season of outdoor track eligibility. I had left over and in the process did some growing up while I was at UMass Lowell too. um, And was able to kind of, I knew I wanted to do medicine and knew I wanted to work with athletes. And for me, it was a very natural path to work with runners in the setting of, of medicine and to try to help them do a lot of injury prevention, but also do a lot of injury management. Cause the, sometimes, uh, I had experiences with doctors who, you know, they're like, uh, buck 50 overweight, they got a big belly and they don't understand why you run in the first place. So, they're like, ah, you should probably just stop running when you have a stress fracture. Like, just don't ever run again. I had somebody, had a guy tell me that during my fifth year of grad school, my very last season of NCAA eligibility, he's like, hey, you got a stress fracture, buddy. You just, just don't run. And I was like, you don't understand. Like, I'm literally here just to run. So not just to run, but that was, so for me, I felt like I could do a lot of good for the running community. And with podiatry, I found out I could obviously work with runners, but then I could be a surgeon as well. And that really scratches an itch for me. I'm very hands-on. I like taking something that looks terrible and making it look much better. And to know that there's a person on the receiving end of that being much better is also very, very rewarding for me. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think you touched on a really important point, right? So why do patients come to see us, right? So they've always got a specific thing in mind and a solution that they're looking for when they go to see you or they come to see me, right? So if somebody comes in and they're a runner and they just want to run the mile and they can't, I would never say stop running. But how often, I mean, how often do you hear, Ben, people come into you and say, I went to, you know, Joe Smith and, you know, MD podiatrist and he said, just don't run. Does that just get underneath your skin? Oh, it just eats me. It's it's actually one of my like career mantras is I will never tell someone they're not going to run ever again because one, you look like an idiot when they go run. Like that's just a surefire way to look like an idiot. And you know, those patients lose faith in you too. That what what alternative are you going to give them? Like there are people who I go, yeah, your mileage should be limited or your running will be different. Um, but to tell someone they're never going to run is a really bad idea. <laughs> Runners just by nature are very stubborn people, myself included. <laughs> so tell me, you know, you, you really have, you know, when I've, you know, met a bunch of podiatrists and I've talked with a bunch of podiatrists, you and really your team with Neil and Don, uh, and you've got a new, a new uh, podiatrist up there too. Yeah, Sam. 
Sam, you guys have a different philosophy in, in how you treat people. And, and frankly, it's why I send all of my patients to you guys. But tell me a little bit about your philosophy at Central Mass and, and your, your philosophy personally. About- well, it, it kind of spans the whole age range. But generally, I, I hope that people sort of look at me in, in two ways. One is as a, almost a, a resource. So I tell people whether they're surgical or non-surgical patients of mine, I am just a sophisticated mechanism by which I get you better, uh, by which you get better rather. So if I'm going to tell them to do a bunch of homework that they have to do and they don't do it, they're not going to get better. If they need a surgery and I have to do my part of the surgery to fix it, they still need to be on the team to rehab it appropriately or stay off of it for the prescribed amount of post-op time. So I think of medicine as very collaborative. It's none of the days of the doctor tells you to do this and you should just go do it because that's what they said. Those days are gone. There's too many resources available for patients. They're very well educated, which I love. So medical care is much more collaborative here. And I love getting second. There's nothing that makes me happier than a second or third opinion that somebody else has either irritated the patient or they haven't gotten them better. And I get to puzzle it out and eventually get them better by different means or surgery or something else, uh, you know, ultrasound imaging to figure out a better diagnosis. Like this is, that's where I, that's where we really like hone our skills. I mean, we get a ton of plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonitis, but we're, we're very much that like me personally, I'm very much the, I treat everybody like they're an elite level athlete. And my goal is to get them better as fast as possible and as safe as possible. The only difference between them and a starting wide receiver for the Patriots is I don't assume they have all of Bob Kraft's money to get better with. So I love that. You know, and I think the big difference too, that I notice, and you may have left this out, but you guys spend the time to actually listen to people. Oh yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had people you know, that we've cross referred or I've sent to you and, you know, they say, listen, you know, Ben really actually just sat with me and, and listened when I said, talked about my knee and my hip too, and how everything's connected. Um, you know, that's really important because, you know, a lot of times people will already come in with kind of a soft diagnosis and, and then you kind of firm it up with your physical exam, your, you know, your, your ultrasound and other, you know, techniques that you have, your imaging. But uh, I think just that rapport is huge just to, to start on the right page and then to go down the path of, okay, are we going to rehab this? Or are we going to do surgery? Or are we going to be somewhere in the middle with a shock wave, a cortisone injection? Or yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that, um, you know, getting the diagnosis from the foot perspective correct is one thing, but if you don't look above the ankle, you miss something obvious. You know, you miss a, a knee valgus that's causing their whole foot to be in a valgus position as well. You, you dive a little bit into their history and you find out they've had IT band syndrome for years and then they have glute weakness and then you wonder why they have perineal tendonitis all the time. It's because they're weak proximally and their poor little perineals are trying to hang on and hold their foot in the right position. Right. Are there, you know, a loosey-goosey 15-year-old teenager or teenage girl, you know, potentially female athletic triad stuff going on, oh, yeah. you know, you get that, you know, genuvalgum, you get the, you know, knee hyperextension and recurvatum. And, you know, there are different reasons. And we'll talk about orthotics and posting in a minute. You know, it's not always just looking at the foot and posting a foot. You really have to consider what it does up the chain oh, yeah. and how it, you know, affects proxim- proximal. Yeah, there's, There's nobody who's ever gotten a pair of orthotics in my office that I haven't seen stand and walk and most of them run too. So, and I think that's philosophically, like you can't really tell how a foot works in 
just open kinetic chain. You can, you can hypothesize about it and you can see what sticks when they stand. If you're, if you're doing a good job, you kind of can predict, but at the same time, you really don't know until the rubber meets the road, so to speak, when they stand and when they walk. Yeah, what Ben is talking about is a thorough examination, right? So if you're a runner, you know, there's no way that we can give you the right device if you don't actually watch what your foot is doing when you're running. Yeah. Um, so that's really important. But let's talk about, before we dive into the uh, inserts and that sort of thing, so it's kind of a hot button topic. Let's talk about what, kind of like the most common foot problems that you see. Like what's your, what is your like everyday steady, you know, nine to five patient comes in, how old are they? What are they coming in with? Uh, walk me through that. I kind of have two things that I really like cut my teeth on. One is athletes. So I see a lot of athletes and the other is I see a lot of surgical referrals. Um, so people who their foot's a disaster, they've seen somebody else at, or someone else in my practice or somebody else in the community and they go, I don't want to touch this. So they send a lot. I get a lot of that from other foot doctors. Um, but you know, that, that only takes up maybe half of my time in the office. We get a lot of ingrown toenails here in the office, but I always look at those patients like athletes too. What's your schedule for the upcoming week? If they're a high school kid or a college kid, what's competition look like? Okay, well, great. We'll, we'll deal with this permanently out of competition. I'll give you a, a three-month fix. So um, there's, I, again, back to that, like treat everybody like an athlete thing. Um, get a lot of plantar fasciitis. Um, so heel pain of all varieties, whether it ends up being a stress fracture or Achilles tendonitis where the Achilles tendon attaches to the heel bone or in the middle of the tendon, get a lot of stuff along those lines. And then every once in a while, you know, I get a, I get a, a zebra instead of something, instead of a horse, uh, you, know, you hear hooves, you're supposed to think horses, not zebras in new England, but every once in a while you get a zebra and that, that, reminds you, oh, I got to really dive into this, some of this stuff. So you can't be on autopilot around here, which is good. But I think what's nice too, is that you've got, you know, you've got Neil, you've got all, you know, Don, you've got other specialists too there that if you say, Hey, listen, you know, this is the first time, not that it's the first time you're really seeing anything, but you know, I haven't seen this in a while. Let me just, you know, pull you in, just have a peek here and see, you know, am I seeing this right? Cause there are certainly patients that, you know, I personally will pull in other PTs and say, this doesn't, this just isn't adding up. There's some sort of variable here that, you know, I just need to, I want another set of eyes. Oh yeah. And the best part is like, we are, our new guy is, he's great, but every once in a while, like one of us will see something weird and we're like, oh, we get, get, the, get him in here. Like a cuboid subluxation. Those are great. Like if you're not looking for those, they're seeing you, but you're not seeing them or a right. bad tarsal tunnel syndrome out of nowhere. Like all of those are, they're common diagnoses, but if you're not looking for them, you're not going to diagnose them correctly. Yeah. That's the, the unicorn in PT is when you're able to do the cuboid whip and oh, <laughs> oh man. Um, I I've, had three. I've had I've three done. and they all, they all came out great. I think I've done it twice in my career in 10 years, but uh, it's fun, you know, cause it's almost an instant fit and, you know, they feel almost immediately better, but um, yeah. So let's walk through um conservative care versus surgical care. So, you know, obviously you treat a lot of heel pain and I think heel pain is, is really a common denominator among disability, if I'm wrong, you know, in the podiatric world, right? now talk to me about heel pain and how you differentiate plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis for somebody who may not know. Yeah. Um, and uh, walk me through what your, like what your thought process is when you're diagnosing and when you're thinking about a treatment pathway. Yeah. So a, a lot of, almost everything, whether it's, um, you know, 
conservative care versus non-surgical care. One of the big, the big directors for me is the time, the duration of time that they've been injured. If you, if you come into me and you've said, you know, you get midfoot pain or plantar fasciitis or something like that, my brain, and you say you've been dealing with it for two years, my brain goes in a totally different direction. For example, I had someone come in here Monday of last week, phenomenal woman. Um, she's had plantar fasciitis. She thinks plantar fasciitis for two to three years. She's gotten three cortisone injections by outside providers. She's done three rounds of PT, not particularly skilled PT. Um, and you know, she got the bread and butter PT, which drives me bananas. Um, I'm sure it drives you even more bananas than me, uh, but the, so right off the bat, I was like, all right, you're a different, you're a different animal. So my willingness to rehash the conservative care that somebody else has done, she's going to get something different. Um, I'm the anti-cortisone in, in many respects for, for plantar fasciitis. It's hard to get a cortisone injection out of me for plantar fasciitis because it's a band-aid, not a, not a solution to the problem a lot, a lot of the time. So these people come in with, with heel pain, bottom of the foot, it's generally going to be either plantar fasciitis or uh, calcaneal bursitis. Um, and calcaneal bursitis is pretty common. Depending on the history, sometimes if they're a long distance runner, they up their mileage. You don't want to miss a calcaneal stress fracture. So you want to check on those things. You tuning fork it, get advanced imaging, anything along those lines will answer that question for you. Back of the heel, similar situation. Demographics kind of help young kids. That back of the heel where your Achilles attaches, if it hurts in a kid, could be Achilles tendonitis, could be the growth plate being irritated by the pull of the tendon. As you work your way up the back part of the Achilles there, you're looking more into the Achilles tendon, but there are other things that get missed back there too. There's any of those tendons that are in the back of your calf that cross your ankle joint and go into your foot, particularly the flexor hallucis longus tendon. I diagnose a lot of FHL tendonitis too, because that tendon does a lot of work for some folks as a, as a main flexor of the ankle uh, that gets missed a bunch. And what do you see clinically when you differentiate your FHL versus like, you know, a regular plant, like plantar flexor group, how are you different? Are you just doing toe flexion? Like how are you? A lot of, a lot of palpation, um, a lot of palpation with motion. So, you know, pushing along that tendon as I activate it, you almost try to, a lot of time you try to trap it and then, and then put it through the range of motion and, and very specifically palpating along the tendon and not the other stuff nearby. A lot of people think back of their ankle and they, they're, they're, the only thing they know of is their Achilles tendon. So people come in saying, I think it's Achilles tendonitis, but they don't know what else is there. So if all you, if, if all you have is a hammer, the whole world is a nail situation here. They just don't have the other tools that I have to diagnose it appropriately. So do a lot of ultrasound exams for those folks. Um, do a lot of MRIs, sometimes a, a targeted cortisone injection into that area works really well to answer the question for you. Uh, sometimes I'll modify, I'll make a, a quick modification to an orthotic or use a piece of foam um, to sort of diagnose, almost like a treatment to diagnose type thing. They're not permanent, but they're just like a, see how this works, let me know. Type yeah. thing. And I think that's great too. You know, I think, um, you know, when you talk about an inflammatory process and itis, right, you know, we've always been taught in school, at least I was, you know, you hit that person with, you know, an anti-inflammatory, like, a, you know, either, you know, 
usually you'd start with an NSAID or something like that. And then typically if somebody comes in with shoulder pain and I, and I feel like it's an acute thing, it's been going on for a couple of weeks, you know, I'll, I'll say, listen, you know, while I'm treating you and I'm probably treating a chronic underlying problem too, and the same thing with the foot and ankle, let's get through this inflammatory process, right? So let's get through it with a week or two or 10 days of ibuprofen and then move forward so that not only can I handle, can we just solve this itis problem, but then we can fix the underlying osis problem as well. Uh, all mechanical and everything else. So walk me through, you know, in your brain, because I know you love, you know, being a little bit more aggressive. And I think, which is great because I think a lot of people, when they come in for that second or third opinion, they're frustrated because they're not getting results from either me or, you know, another podiatrist or whatever. So typically it goes somebody, another podiatrist to me, and then I refer out to you if it's complicated, you know, and I think, talk to me a little bit about the shock wave and what that does and how that's yeah. a little bit more it sure. you dive right into that inflammatory pathway instead oh yeah so you know i i tell folks a lot of time with plantar fasciitis in particular kind of treating we're using two treatment categories one is manage the inflammation and the other is manage your mechanics and if you made me pick just one category to work from i would always pick manage your mechanics because eventually the inflammation is going to kind of calm down on its own so even those patients that are complicated and have had three years of something, they may have been icing and doing anti-inflammatories, but they may not be doing it my way. So the standard home home plan that people walk out of here with, whether they're getting advanced stuff or not, is they're going to do a contrast bath once a day, cold, hot, cold, five minutes in each bath um, for every day for like two weeks for me. You're going to be doing a morning stretch. You're going to be doing some foam rolling to try to deal with some muscle release stuff. Like myofascial release is great. And then in terms of the inflammation category, you kind of have two roads to go. One is you can shut down all inflammation with a cortisone injection, which in my opinion, most of the time is just going to block your pain signals and kind of mask the actual issue. And a lot of time it lets you misbehave. So pain is a great motivator. I tell people that all the time. Pain is going to stop you from doing something stupid. So if I give that runner who's, you know, in, in their first major buildup for a marathon ever, their cortisone injection right into their plantar fascia, they're going to go, thanks, see you later. They're going to go run their 15 mile run and they're, they have a hugely increased risk of rupturing their plantar fascia. So a uh, good podiatrist worth their salt if they give a cortisone injection tells you not to run for 10 days. And that's just not an acceptable answer for most runners. And philosophically, I'm very not in that category. So the alternative to cortisone is something called shockwave therapy. And best way to describe it is it kind of looks like a handheld jackhammer. And what it's doing is applying a force to your tissues. We have two versions now. We have a a radial device, which is a little bullet in a chamber. It impacts your tissue and it creates a a pressure wave that goes through your tissues. So when that hits the tissues, it creates a compressive force on the initial wave. In between impacts, you get this um, tensile like stretch in between them. You get transient bubble formation in those low pressure regions, which then form and burst and they also caught so all of this is occurring at a cellular level and the only time your body ever really experiences those types of forces or events is when it's being acutely injured you fall off a height and you stomp your bone you're going to get a bruise except this is more of a controlled force and courtesy of tens of millions of years of evolution, this pathway in our body to heal acute injuries 
is very profound. It works really well. So all of the chemical cas biochemical cascade that happens after and during a shockwave treatment is really beneficial for either treating an acute injury to get your body to wake up to it and work even harder, or taking a chronic injury that it's been ignoring and getting your body to wake up and go, oh crap, we got to go fix that. Um, I tell, there are some folks that are like, well, is it going to work for my plantar fasciitis? It's three years old. And I, I'll, because I grew up in the boondocks in Sutton, I'll say like, yeah, you, you know, like if, if you were driving past somebody's old dilapidated barn, you eventually stop even seeing it when you're driving home. You know, you drive that way every day. You don't even think about it. If you were driving home one day and all of a sudden you see a bunch of scaffolding put up on the side of that barn, you're going to be a little more interested in it as you drive by. And that's sort of what we're getting with the fibroblast macrophages, all those, in, those cells that are important for healing, they're going to go, they're going to look at that scaffold and go, Hey, what's going on over there? And they, they'll go check it out and they'll start going to work. So chronic injuries, you know, think of an old dilapidated barn, new injuries, think of somebody building a brand new uh, office building. There's a bunch of scaffolding that goes up. It's the same type of response, the same worker cells have to go there and improve the tissue and get it, get it to heal, improve the blood flow with the VEGF pathway and everything along those lines. But, you know, we're getting a response. So your body actually goes and works on it instead of just driving by, not thinking about it. Right. No, I think that's great. And, you know, if you were to dumb it down for just like the everyday, you know, listener, I think what you're saying, right, is that we're introducing inflammation to that tissue to create length in the tissue. Yeah, we're, we're introducing the correct type of inflammation that goes to healing. There are some pathways in our body for inflammation that are just dead ends, and they're going to they're gonna leave you with a chronic state of inflammation that's not going to heal. What we do with Shockwave is switch it from that dead end to the pathway that leads to improved tissue quality with better circulation through capillary action, less fibrotic material, less scar tissue, um, bringing you closer to that normal, natural tissue that's supposed to be there in that biologic area. Yeah, and I think that's so important, you know, and I think especially with the chronic pain. And what's funny too, Ben, is what is almost everybody's chief complaint when they come in, you know, pain. aside from their functional deficit, which might be running or I can't walk or in the first few steps out of bed in the morning are brutal, is the pain, right? So when you tell them, hey, you know, for a couple of weeks here or a few weeks, this is, might be a little bit more painful you know, how do you kind of manage expectations? Like, do you tell them, hey, listen, in a month, this is, you know, your body is going to do its work. We're going to hit the reset button here with your nervous system, because that's really what it is. You're resetting the nerve, you know, at that whole pathway. And then like, how do you have that conversation with people? Because when people yeah, work, so it, it's just funny there that, in your office, all the pain. Yeah. You know? um, there's a, there's a chemical involved with transmission of pain called substance P. And it's, if you picture it as like a little carrier of pain signals, when I'm doing shockwave, it actually, your body gets used to the energy level that I'm using. So I'm able to just kind of keep ratcheting it up as I go, which is good because basically the more energy you use on this, the more energy you can focus into that tissue, the better in terms of your biologic response. So as we're doing that, we actually burn up this molecule of substance P. It takes a couple days to build it back up in your, in your nervous system, but so after a shockwave treatment, people usually feel better for about three to four days before they're able to recuperate their substance P. 
and then start to feel discomfort in that area, which is one of the reasons why I'm pretty, I vary my protocols a little bit. I pretty much shockwave once a week because you're going to feel better for three, four days. And then it starts to kind of trickle back in and feel uncomfortable again. But the real meat and potatoes, that cellular healing doesn't really happen until at least four weeks after the first shockwave treatment. So depends on the chronicity of the injury over six months, it's four treatments. Typically depends on the tissue under six months. It's usually three treatments with the shockwave. So by the time I'm done giving the shockwave treatments, they're usually pretty close to when they're going to start to be feeling a real actual tangible, measurable tissue biopsy proven improvement in the tissue. Um, but some people are slow responders. So I'll have them generally after that third or fourth treatment, I say disappear for four weeks. And it's not because I don't want to see them or because I don't care. It's because if they come back, they're still going to be in a little bit of discomfort because it hasn't really done its job yet as much as I want it to. That fourth treatment hasn't done much for them at one week out. So they disappear for four weeks most of the time because I don't want to be tempted to do another shockwave treatment that they don't need. So usually when they come back at four weeks, they're like, Hey, I feel pretty good. And if they're getting a, a gradual increase in the number of good days and a decrease in the number of bad days, then we know we're, we're on the right track. And most of the time, that's all it takes. Yeah, that's great. So you're looking for that positive trajectory. Yep. I'll oh. say if you, if you go abuse it, you're going to pay for it and you probably deserve it. No offense, <laughs> but you know, and I think, you know, to your point, you're hitting, you know, and again, like the, what I was talking about before is that people want to get rid of their pain. Right. And I think yeah. a lot of people get stuck in, I'll do whatever it takes. And, you know, I looked on web, web MD and they said, get a cortisone shot. Right. Or I went to this PT and they said, go to this podiatrist and get a cortisone shot. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from colleagues in the past, just go get a cortisone shot when that's not really hitting the mechanics, right? The root cause of what's going on, which is mechanical, right? So you're hitting the mechanics at the bottom of the foot. You might be posting, you might not be posting, but you're actually making intracellular changes to fix the problem for good instead of the temporary solution of the cortisone shot, which is solving the inflammatory process, but it's not changing any of the cellular function to fix the problem for eight weeks. That same person got the cortisone shot, and this is what you and I see all the time, eight weeks out because they feel great. And then they go hike a mountain or walk around their neighborhood. <laughs> they come in limping the next day or they're in a boot because they went to the ER. Yeah, and, and I'm like, what I told you. <laughs> yeah. And I, I lean, I'm, you know, every physician should be a scientist first. We have so much science background that if you don't do a literature review, on, if you've never done a literature review on a cortisone injection, the, they do these massive meta analyses and combine all the literature reviews. And they find after 30 days, your likelihood of being better from a cortisone injection for plantar fasciitis is slim to none. There's little to no evidence that supports anything after for improvement after 30 days from a cortisone injection. But I can print you four or five randomized controlled studies that show you tissue biopsy, proven improvement in tissue quality, reduction of pain, increase in function, all of those measures after shockwave therapy. Yeah, which is great. You know, and that's what that's what I think. And it's up to us to really kind of parse through what people are, are looking for. And, and for me, if it were my, my body or, you know, you know, somebody whom I love's body, I would want them to fix the problem at its cause yeah. instead of just treating symptoms. Um, yep. Let's talk about orthotics. Let's talk about inserts. Talk about, you know, your perfect, like, and I tell people this all the time, you know, it could make you 5% better. It could make you 50% better. 
somewhere in between. It's not, never going to cure your problem, you know, unless you're the perfect patient for orthotic. I lost it there. Sorry. Still there. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Sorry. You still there? Oh, you're back. All right. I'm here. Sorry. I lost you after, uh, might make you a little better. Might make you a lot better. Yeah. So just walk me through your perfect patient to, you know, to prescribe inserts to orthotics and walk me through, um, you know, the two different types and, and when you, when you kind of use uh, either. You talk two different types, like over the counter versus prescription. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, OTCs too. And then, you know, the difference between the semi-flexible and the semi-rigid orthotics. Yeah, sure. So, uh, I generally, I try not to do orthotics unless I've tried other stuff first. Now, granted, there are some people who come in and I go, yikes, you have the worst case of pathologic flat foot I've ever seen. You need a surgery, but I'm going to offer you an orthotic first if, if you don't want a surgery. So there are some of those folks that make it into my practice. But the vast majority of the time, the person who ends up with an orthotic for me is the person who at the end of the day is having discomfort. First step in the morning pain is its own separate animal or the person who's more active. The more active you are, the more it hurts, the more that indicates to me the failure of your body to do what it's supposed to do. So those are the patients that to me do the best with an orthotic. Um, Somebody who's had plantar fasciitis for two weeks because they went and walked on a beach with, with no shoes on and they were having a couple, you know, pina coladas out there and they didn't realize they were hurting themselves that's a terrible patient for an orthotic. All you're going to do is put an expensive device in their shoe that they don't necessarily need. They've never needed it before. So unless something has dramatically changed for them in that two week period, they probably don't need it. So um, the chronicity of it tends to be a reason that I would do the longer that's been there, the more likely I am to do an orthotic. The symptom history in terms of the more it hurts, the more active, the more active they are, the more it hurts. That tends to push me towards an orthotic. Um, I am very much a try the cheapest solution if we think it's going to work for you type of guy. Um, you know that. That being said, we offer all sorts of fancy things in our office, like amniotic tissue tissue graft injections under ultrasound guidance that cost fifteen hundred dollars. But I don't jump right to that with somebody who has chronic plantar fasciitis. That's a it's a really expensive tool to use when I maybe don't, more than likely don't need it. So I always compare an over-the-counter orthotic to a suit off the rack. Those, those guys that make the suits and the guys that make the mass produce the suits or mass produce those over-the-counter orthotics, they make them to fit the most average person ever. You want to make a device that Joe Blow, who has the most middle of the road foot ever, puts that on and he's going to get the most improvement from it. And there are some people who do just fine with that. Myself, I look like a human coat hanger. So if I buy a suit off the rack, there's no way that that thing's gonna, it may do something for me. It makes me not naked, but for it to fully do its job of being a professional looking suit, it's not going to do all of that for me. So I end up having to have something that's either adjusted, modified, or custom made to fit what my body needs. And that's sort of the case with an over-the-counter orthotic too. You know, you may get some benefit from it. It may support your arch a little bit, but 
just because you and I both have size 10 or 10 and a half or 15 feet, whatever it may be, doesn't mean that that orthotic is going to hit your particular anatomy very well. And most of those devices are made to control some of the heel, but a lot of what I get is midfoot discomfort and forefoot discomfort. And those companies have waved the white flag and it is really expensive to make multiple models of multiple devices. So the more you're the more, the more forward in your foot you go towards your toes, the more variation there is anatomically. So you're looking at a more difficult person for them to try to hit with the most average orthotic. So they're cheap, they're 50 bucks, and they probably last some folks six months to a year, which is great. But long-term, the, if you're not the most average foot with the most average activity level, you're starting to move away from the middle of that bell curve that they aim for. I think that's a really great explanation, you know, and I think anytime I walk into CVS and they still got one of those Dr. Scholl's things where you step step on the feet and it says, you know, okay, you're good for C5 orthotic because, you know, you weigh this much and it's a gel insert and it's 75 bucks. It makes me cry inside. I just cringe when I walk through there and I can just see, you know, you know, Medicare Mary walking down the aisle and saying, Hey, listen, you know, this is going to make my feet feel great because it's a gel insert. You know, how could that make my feet feel terrible? But, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, listening, it's, it all starts with subjective, right? So listening to the patient, how long has the problem been going on? I think what is what you're saying. And, you know, and also if it's been two weeks, why would you change their foot mechanics? You don't yeah. want to do that because that's going to change things up the chain too. Yep. And that's what I see. I see the hip pain. I see the, you know, the labor, you know, the labral type pain at the hip. I see the, you know, medial knee pain if people are posted improperly or, you know, they're wearing orthotics that are, you know, not right for them or they're in shoes. Sometimes they get custom orthotics and they put them in overpronatory beast shoes and they're completely inverted. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and uh, well, that's another thing that I, I think is important. The combination of your orthotic plus your shoe determines the amount of correction. You know, you're not putting it on. There's no, everybody doesn't wear the same shoes. So, you, you know, there's plenty of variation in shoes out there. And if you get the combination wrong, you get hurt. Right. Do you recommend a neutral ride shoe when you fit custom orthotics or is it depends all- on the foot depends on the person, you know, it, it's uh Sometimes folks feel better in a minimalist shoe once you get them in orthotic. Sometimes and I, I tend to push people towards a more minimalist design of a shoe. So a lower heel dr- and it's all progressive. You don't just go to a zero drop shoe, but you move from your ASICs, which has a standard platform of about a 12 millimeter drop to something that's got a 10 or down into a new balance. That's an eight or into a Saucony or a Brooks, and then you make your way to a Hoka that's a five or an on that's a five. Any like, and it very much depends on your foot shape as well. And, and what I'm correcting or not correcting. I spend a lot of, I have people who I put a ton of patients in topos because their platform is a five millimeter drop for their highest heel stack. And then if they want to keep moving down, they can move to a, a three or a two or a zero from there if they want to. What, what is your thought process? And I've, I've only seen, honestly, a couple of these, these feet in my career because you know, I'm not a podiatrist, but an anatomically flat foot and posting and the orthotics literally come out completely flat. But, you know, I actually did them for, you know, a former supervisor. I did them for her son because she, as a favor, she asked me to, I never would have done them had, you know, she not asked me to do them, but the orthotics, literally his feet were so flat. They came out almost without an arch. 
what is your thought process on, on that sort of and it's that, that has more to do with whatever process you're using to fabricate your orthotic so if somebody has a rigidly flat foot they're probably not going to get much benefit from an orthotic but if they have a flexible flat foot you can put them in a corrected position a more stable functional position for their foot and their ankle and everything else up the chain by casting them appropriately. So I'm a, I'm a neutral subtalar joint, neutral suspension cast for all. And that's like a bunch of fancy words that is definitely shop talk for you and I, um, I'm, I'm a never, never weight bearing, never foam to me, There's, you know, different schools of thoughts for podiatry versus PT. I cast everything in prone. Yeah, I'm, I'm a never foam box. Dr. Felto's hanging out. Uh, never foam box, never weight bearing scans for, for orthotics because they're just, it's no different than the Dr. Scholl's device at CVS. It's going it, to, it's what your foot is doing, what it wants to do. And obviously that's not working. So if I tell it what to do based on your biomechanics, then we can get a better device. Right. I mean, that's how I've always done it. I've always, you know, and I call it the old school way because it's, it's down and dirty. I mean, it's like you're getting plaster all over your, your shoes and your pants sometimes, uh, you know, and I think that that's, it's non-weight bearing. You can hold the foot exactly where you want to hold it. I pick up the forefoot varus if I need to, if it's a super flexible forefoot, you know, and I think, and it's all, you know, you just got to do it the right way. And I think that's finding subtalar neutral and it's not putting your foot into a foam box and sending it out to a company and saying, here, just try to fab fabricate the orthotic for this right. foot. Cause then you put it all in their hands to use their fancy tools and bring, you know, then they're changing the arch, which right. is the whole reason. Then, for the it's just, the then it's just guess and check. And there's nothing that drives me more nuts than the docs who use a plastic orthotic. That's not going to last more than two, three years, just from creep of the materials and then they go, oh, let me just adjust it for you. And they just hit it with the heat gun for two I minutes. Hate, we know some people. And then they, and they push speak, around on it. Speak. Oh my God, it drives me bananas. So like you do all this fancy work, you're you're using science and technology and the actual technique. And then you're like, oh, fine, I'll just hit it with the heat gun and, and push it around. Like you're some sort of like kid playing around with clay. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think what's funny, you know, people underestimate the process and, you know, at least the company that I use, these people have master's degrees in prosthetics and orthotics, you know, and at least, you know, when you find a, a you know, a proper company to do it for you, like you can call them and have a legit conversation about your patient and say, hey, listen, this person presenting this, 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 and they really come up with a solution that, you know, is going to help that person. Yeah. Um, let's talk about balance. So that's a huge uh, you know, 70 plus, we know the stats, right? So if you can't balance on one foot for 10 seconds, you're at an increased risk for falls. If you can't balance on one foot for five seconds, you're at an in increased risk for an injurious fall. I don't know what, whether it's 70 plus, I forget the stat on that, but basically if you're older, you can't balance on one foot, you're in trouble. So walk me through when you see somebody who's got poor balance, what is your mind doing? Oh, so, uh, you know, my patient population isn't a hundred percent in that, like, 70 plus range and I just operated on a 90 year old for her ankle fracture so like I I was treating her like she was in her 60s because she's a she's a sweet little butt kicker she's awesome she's cool she's really cool but you know the 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 risks for falls are there we do a lot of gait analysis and we have balance braces out there that that we use here that are custom fitted to try to give people a little more stability in their foot and ankle. But a lot of that stuff is certainly in your realm, in your world, much more than mine, other than me catching it and 
referring it out. Like you guys are there for more of the hip and glute stability, keeping them from, from toppling. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the balance is obviously tied to hip strength and, and quad strength. And those are actually directly tied to mortality stats too. So the weaker your quads and your hips are, as you get older, you have an increased risk of, of mortality. Um, yeah. And interesting, there's a ton of overlap in the like biomechanical community with the researchers, the guys who never, who, the guys with PhDs instead of DPMs or PTs um, that do a lot of like gait initiation. So the like getting up from a seated position, how long it takes, and then the time from two butt cheeks on the chair to three steps later, they don't use that term, but you know, how long it takes to get those first three steps off really deter is, is a measure of uh, stability and, and how, how quickly you obviously how quickly you can get going, but there's some indicators on that as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for us, I mean, you, you, we've been doing this for a long time, so I can just see somebody walk, you know, in terms of a tug, you know, it's great to do a timed up and go, or, you know, a five, five times sit to stand, whatever, you know, I think you just, you already know, I mean, you do that for the notes for the insurance companies, but you know, when people are weak and I think and it really starts in your fifties, in my opinion, you know, and really kind of staying on top of really your kind of your healthy habits. Right. So, you know, what's starting to break down at age 50. And, and this is a good question for you at the foot and ankle complex and below the knee, where do you see opportunity for people to kind of improve their quality of life starting at age 50? Yeah. Uh, I I think you and I land in the same territory where your your habits as a 50-year-old were developed when you were in your 40s and your habits as a 40-year-old were developed when you were in your 30s. So, and, you know, to carry that through, you don't stop doing stuff because you get old, you get old because you stop doing stuff. So we've all had the a 90-year-old butt kicker in our practices where we're like, what is it that she's doing? And you're hoping it's something like, oh, I drink one Miller High Life a day. And you're like, great, that's a wonderful salute. But that's not usually the case. That's a, a lifetime of habits. But in, I, uh, a lot of it is good foot mechanics. If you've had crappy foot mechanics, which you probably inherited from your parents, you're, and you didn't do anything about them, then that's eventually starts to catch up to you when you're in your later life. So I see a lot of hallux limitus, big toe joint arthritis because of poor shoe gear, poor gait mechanics through the first ray, and then they destroy their big toe joint. And from there they have pain and then they compensate and that causes other issues and breakdown in different joints. So I see a lot of first MPJ arthritis, big toe joint arthritis is one of the main catcher, like one of the main things I see a lot of. Yeah. What else, in, you know, in terms of indicators, I think that's a great point, right? So once you start to see, because up the chain, that first MTP joint is huge. And I can't underestimate when I catch that at 30 or 40, I'm always either consulting with you or I know that it's causing it when people don't have that great toe extension or they've got a huge bunion already formed. You know, I know that they're compensating. They're not towing off, right? So they're lifting up their feet. They're hitting harder. There's more pressure on the medial knee joint. There's more pressure on the IT band and there's more pressure creating spondylolytic type change in the back. And people don't understand the anatomy of how that all works. But I think just from simply seeing that bunion, if people knew, okay, I've got this bunion, I don't have any pain yet, but people might say that I walk a little funny, you know, cause they're probably towed out if they've got the bunion, maybe, maybe not. Um, I think that's a great indicator of, hey, you know, maybe I should go see Ben or Sean. And just, even though I don't have pain, you know, have them take a look at it. And that doesn't mean orthotics, 
what's the stat? How many people have a flexible forefoot varus or a flexible forefoot? That are uh, well, a, a flat foot is over 70% of the general population has a flat foot. Only about 15% has a neutral foot and only about 15% has a high arch foot. So just because you have flat feet doesn't mean you need an orthotic, but yeah. there, to me, it's pain in a joint with increasing activity. Now, if you sit in a chair and play video games all day, you're never going to have pain in your feet because you never actually put load through that. But right. those folks that are, you know, they're, they're either weekend warriors or they're starting an exercise plan because they, they're, they're finally, they're, it's the new year and they're trying to make themselves better and start an exercise plan. Those are the folks who, if you're starting to get pain, something's up. Um, your body should be able to handle a walking and standing load under normal circumstances. So I wouldn't abstain from activity. That's a pathway to an early grave in many ways, but to, to let that be the driver for you is not great. Um, callus pattern is also fairly helpful. Um, people who have a big callus on the, the medial side of their big toe joint indicates that they're rolling off of the side. So you get that pinch callus and that usually indicates that the big toe joint is jamming, whether they know it or not. A big callus under the second metatarsal usually indicates that that first ray is insufficient. So if their foot is like this and the first ray floats up into the air, that poor second metatarsal underneath carries a lot of load as they as they progress through the gait cycle. Right. So you're saying that that line of weight bearing is now shifted laterally. Yeah. And that's a that poor skinny little bone. Your, your first metatarsal is a big a big robust metatarsal. It's like having a team of movers moving a piano. You got that one big guy who's supposed to carry most of the load and you got four skinny guys that look like me. And if the big guy gets out of the way, he turns around, he starts texting instead of helping lift. The poor skinny guy next to him gets really beat up. And that's where I see capsulitis under the second toe that people tear their planar plate. I see a lot of second met stress fractures from that. And long-term I see arthritis at the metatarsal cuneiform joint from that second metatarsal being flexed up over and over and over again until it starts to fail. Right, so it starts to become a problem in the midfoot as well, yep. and proximally comes proximal. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about um, what you look for in a good PT clinic. So when you send, I know you send to a couple different places, walk me through what your expectation is of a, of a good PT treatment. To me, a good PT is not, little old lady PT for my patients. You could be a little old lady, but when I send someone to PT, there's <laughs> every once in a while, I'll send somebody for PT to, um, I think the nice way to say it is enhance compliance. If they're not doing their homework that they need to do to get better, then sometimes they just need to have something on their schedule that they're going to adhere to their calendar and go, oh crap, I got to go do my PT stuff. There are plenty of folks that get that and they're okay. And any Joe Blow PT can probably handle that because the patient probably could have done that stuff on their own, but they neither needed the social collateral of having to go see someone and cancel if they weren't going to go, if they weren't going to do it, whatever it may be. So there's, there's a very small portion of my patients who need that. The vast majority of my patients, if they're getting PT, they're getting skilled PT, which to me is more than just show up, get a, get a heat pack for their, whatever their injury, ride the bike for 10 minutes, four minutes of manipulations or poking around or massage. And all right, go do your cool down, 10 more minutes on the bike and a cold pack. And then they're out the door. That's not real PT. Like I have had that type of PT in my life and that's not real PT. 
that's it happens it still happens around here too it's terrible like that's if you're a little old lady who's there for gate stabilization training maybe that's fine like you got out the the biggest benefit to that pt is they got in and out of their car two times because they were getting up and standing and working their quads so but they got out the door so what what i need is uh what i look for in a pt is a group of people who understand the injury to the foot or ankle and then how that pertains to the rest of their body and their rest of their mechanics so i expect them to be able to do direct tissue manipulation for me. I'm a big fan of Graston and ART and all of e-stim and dry needling, all of those like direct tissue manipulations. But I'm also looking for a place that's going to go, all right, there's an overload in this, in this chain somewhere, you know, weak quads, weak hamstrings or overturned on hamstrings, too tight hip flexors, weak glutes. Oh, you're a big thoracic breather, breather and you don't know how to use your diaphragm. Like all of those are things that I want my PT to do for my patients because a lot of time that's what they need. Um, in addition to getting their actual injury better, they need a better foundation for life and activity. And so I'm expecting my PT to do all of that while they're there at the same time. They don't, I, they, I, the good ones like you guys, they, I don't really have to say much. I'm like, they're coming in for Achilles tendonitis, posterior chain tightness, glute weakness, have at it, go nuts. And and I tell them that I tell a lot of my patients, and my experiences with good PT have been, I go there and they're like, all right, do this thing. And you can't do it. And you're like, but it's just, it was the first one for me that was really illuminating was standing on one leg with a yoga block on my contralateral leg and pushing against the wall. I can do it for like 15 seconds before my glute was on fire. And I was like, I'm done. Nope. I'm tapping out. Like obviously something's wrong here. So yeah. um, I think that's, there's definitely, you know, we call those like kind of buy-in tests, right. You know, with PT, the PT world, you know, and I think that's, you're bringing the athlete to the barrier. Right. And I think athletes need different care than, you know, other, you know, there's different, not, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say levels of care, but you know, you can't just do, you know, a Joe PT exam and test muscle strength on an athlete, you need to look at them dynamically. You know, you need to put them through functional movement assessments. You need to really stress, you know, different, you know, unique muscle groups that, you know, are typically we know are indicators of, of you know, success. But I, you know, I think another key point too, and I talk to my PTs about this all the time is, you know, whatever we're doing, if you're seeing somebody for six to eight weeks, there should be a change, right? So if they're coming in and there's no change, that's a problem. You know, either they get worse or they get better. But like, if they're not getting any changes in eight weeks, we really need to look at that plan of care and say, okay, how are we, we're, we're not moving in any direction here. So who do we either need to consult with or what do we need to add to this plan of care, whether it's shockwave or an injection or whatever, or surgery, you know, not that we want to go there, but potentially it's sometimes the only solution. Um, yeah. and, uh, so, to, to touch on that point, the better PTs, are better communicators. They, they go, Hey, everything's good. A lot of time, I don't, I don't need someone to say, Hey, this worked great. And like fluff my ego. I don't have a giant ego, but I have enough of an ego that I'm fine to know that when something's worked great, I don't need to necessarily hear about it. But when things aren't going well, right. time is the most important resource we have because you don't get any more of it ever. So if a patient's wasting four weeks and not making any progress, then we need to change something. And I love when PTs reach out to me or any other physicians or any other 
people that we're working with here reach out and say, we're not making any progress. Something's up. That's, that's the best. That closed loop is, is, is phenomenal. And I think that's just, it, it speaks to a higher level of care, right? So how many practices do you know of that are really, you know, a lot of practices are myopic, right? They kind of stay in their zone and they're like, oh, well, you could go see this guy, but I don't really know him. I'm not, you know, we're not friends or we don't tax, you know, we text about patients, you know, I yeah. text, you know, Phil Leahy about, we, we kind of go back and HIPAA forth. compliant, of course. Compliant. HIPAA but, compliant. But you know, I think that's an important feature of any practice you go to because you want people to communicate about your case to make sure that you're getting the best, the very best care, right? Yeah. If you're not you know, finding a solution. Sometimes it's hard for the patient to act as the, the messenger. They don't understand. They don't have, they don't necessarily have the like medical background to say like, oh, I'm weak in my, in my gemelli. Like they don't know what a gemelli is. Right. Right. The, the women's health specialists do, but. They shouldn't do. <laughs> um, let's talk about, uh, so we talked a little bit about baby boomers and kind of identifying, you know, some sort of key features, so, you know, the hallux valgus, the callus formation, um, changes in foot structure. And, and I'm really a big proponent of once you hit 50, 55, you know, and if you feel like your foot is changing in structure at all, why not just schedule an appointment with a podiatrist and just say, Hey, you know, Dr. Ben, I mean, you're so versed in everything foot and ankle. It is foot and ankle is the cause of like, a ton of knee pain, hip pain, low back pain. The first place that I go for anything hip or knee related is the foot and ankle. Yeah. And it all usually starts there. So once I can fix that, then I go up. So walk me through just one more time, like those baby boomers, maybe you do like a, I, I really would, I'm a huge proponent of a PT physical, but walk me through if somebody came to you for like a physical and they're 55 or 60, what would you do? Uh, a couple things first. So usually they get in here, they're in the chair with their shoes off. I kind of do the standard assessment, neurological assessment. You're checking for good sensation. Great. Norm, a normal, healthy person. No big deal. Diabetics, bigger deal. Um, I check their vascular status. So you're checking the pulses, make sure they have good blood flow. If they don't have good blood flow, lifelong smoker, history of peripheral vascular disease, diabetics, um, sometimes they get sent out for vascular work. Just that's the first survey there. Um, do a visual screening. You're looking at the derm stuff, looking for any kind of callus pattern that's typical for certain pathologies, whether it's a medial heel callus for plantar fasciitis and overprint or overpronation, that medial hallux callus or something under a lesser metatarsal head. Those are usually pretty indicative of certain mechanical pathologies. Then I'm going to, I usually work my way from distal to proximal. I'll start at the first MPJ. I'll check the range of motion of the big toe joint, both loaded and unloaded. Um, usually they're coming in for some kind of pain. So I will typically zoom in on that pretty quickly. Um, checking the range of motion of the mid-tarsal joint and the rear foot, checking subtalar joint range of motion. I spend a lot of time checking ankle joint range of motion and ankle joint mobility, um, predominantly in the sagittal plane. So up and down as, as that would be to most regular folks out there. Um, and I check that both with knee extended and knee flexed. I find that uh, the way I measure it is pretty consistent. I'm measuring the lateral border of the calcaneus the skin line there. Um, you can get a lot of mid tarsal extraneous range of motion that can mess up your, your data. So I find that there are very few people in the general population that can get much beyond neutral with their knee extended. 
Now, there's never a time in the gait cycle where your knee is fully extended, so it's not that big of a deal, but it is sort of a, an overarching indicator to me. Once I've got that information under my belt, um, I'll usually have them stand up. I'll have them do a couple different tests if I'm looking for certain things. Usually, I'll have them stand facing me, have them stand facing away from me. I'm looking at their heel position. I'll have them usually do a single and double leg um, heel lift where you roll up on your tiptoes on both feet. I'm checking a lot of the mechanical motions back there in your rear foot. And then after that, it's a gait exam. You know, I take them out in the hallway and then they walk the catwalk a few times. And usually by the first one is usually a throwaway because they're super self-conscious. And two or three later that I've usually got enough information. I start from the top down, check the head position, shoulders, hips, looking for hip range of motion, looking for internal rotation of the leg, internal external rotation of the legs, checking for line of progression to see if they have a really separated line of stance or, or overlapping. A lot of dancers, they kind of turn in a ton um, from hip tightness um, and looking for when their heel comes up off the ground. If they're runners, I'll put them on the treadmill every once in a while. Sometimes people don't come in ready to run. They're in their, in their fancy jeans and their nice jacket. And I'm like, oh, I gotta make you run. It's come back later, come back two weeks from now. And we'll put you on the treadmill. Uh, but that's like the overall bread and butter, like standard exam, any kind of foot pain or deformity that I'm looking at, we have in-office x-rays. So I'll get a lot of x-rays before if my staff is very well-trained. So you've got a particular pain or a foot deformity, they can catch it and say, you probably, he's going to want x-rays. So they'll try to save you the time of sitting there in the chair where I come and go, Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Holy crap. You need x-rays. So they try to save us that step. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, you know, so the last piece is, you know, so just a little blip. So we're, we're actually getting an alter alter G. Oh, that's awesome. Treadmill. Uh, it's coming in in a week. And one of the unique features about this, the treadmill that we're getting uh, is that it has the ability to do a gait analysis, which is really cool. Sweet. So it shows, you know, not only can you up, unload 80% of, you know, a patient's weight, uh, but you can also print out a, like a cadence, you can uh, print out how much with the weight bearing on each side. It's, it's really neat. Uh, Does it have a force plate in there? There must be. I mean, it's, it's got. I'm going to have to come, I have to come mess around with this thing. That sounds yeah. awesome. So I'll have to get you down to, uh, to check it out. So it should be here in a week or two. So we're really looking forward to that, but I think it could be a game changer for patients with stress injuries, you know, uh, older, older folks, uh, who would have potentially gone to, you know, aquatic care or something like that. If they're, you know, can't put too much weight through their, their oh, also my post-op patients, that's spectacular. You know, joint, joint fusion or something like that. I'm, I want them off it until I'm pretty convinced it's going to be, almost entirely healed but if i can get them up on it sooner then That's there's great. a lot of benefits to to that and putting you through that normal range of motion getting your gait retrained early before the fusion site is 100 percent done is actually pretty beneficial yeah and if you can get it to be pain-free gait so you're you know yeah. you're not crushing that substance p you know and that and you're not creating that whole pathway i mean that's and as, as a PT, I've always had issue with partial weight bearing <laughs> when they say 50% or 20% weight bearing or toe, toe touch weight bearing. Nobody ever in a million years that I've been doing this obeys their true precautions, yeah. especially 50% partial weight bearing. That just drives me nuts. So for the touchdown when they always smash the crackers, right? So I think uh, it's a really unique opportunity, you know, for you to say, hey, Sean, let's really do 50% weight bearing and see. Oh, yeah. I mean, know, it's runners. My, I had a runner did a little accessory bone excision, advanced or tendon. And 
she was doing aquatic therapy because that's what I, that was all I would let her do at that point. Cause the tendon's not fully healed until eight weeks. It's not, it's not healed to the bone until around eight weeks, but she started, it's been proven in the literature, early range of motion of that tendon helps it heal in a more organized fashion. Heals more like the, the box of uncooked spaghetti instead of the bowl of cooked spaghetti. So right. if you can get those tendon fibers to orient the right way by loading it partially, then you're in a much better spot. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that the perfect candidate, you know? Um, so if everybody, anybody who's, who's on the call, if they want to just type in their takeaways to the call today, that'd be great. Or if you have any questions for Dr. Ben or myself, uh, I don't see anything yet, but, uh, we'll give it a minute. Um, Patty, thank you for joining. Glad you, hope you get something out of it. Um, wonderful i like forgot that there were other people here i didn't even look that there were participants it's so funny sorry guys i was just here talking shop with with sean almost the whole time sorry if any language was over your head i'm happy feel free to send me an email and i can uh and we can just hang out and i'll talk and i talk in very plain language with most of my patients because even though i paid a lot for my education and know all the expensive words it doesn't do my patients a lot of good when i basically speak in a foreign language to them. No, I think you did a great job today of just, you know, talking shop, but also, you know, being able to use analogies to get your point across. Uh, I like the house with the scaffolding. That's a good one. I might steal oh, yeah. <laughs> you can steal it by all means. Most of my right. stuff is, uh, you know, I came up with it on a long run or in the shower. So none of it's trademarkable. You feel free to steal my, my intellectual property. I might just do that. Usually I see the patients when the house is on fire. <laughs> then I send them to you. <laughs> and then we get back to the scaffolding phase. Um, yeah, you got to put the fire out before you put the scaffolding back up. Got to put that fire out. But, uh, you know, really appreciate you joining us today, Ben. Yeah. And, um, you know, thanks again. And, uh, you know, have a great week and a great weekend. And We'll be in touch. All right. Thanks again. Thanks again for tuning in to the Hooked on Health podcast with your host, Dr. Sean T. Lorden, author of the 11 Winning Secrets to Stop Aging in Its Tracks, and owner, private practice owner of Concierge Physical Therapy in Sutton, Mass., and soon to be Westboro, Mass. Thanks again for tuning in.